Good evening. My name is Vivian Catfield, and this is Haunted Muse, a podcast that showcases my writing work in the horror, paranormal, supernatural, and southern gothic genres, as well as the folklore and history that inspired it. This is episode 50 of Haunted Muse, and the 11th episode of my third novel, Skeleton's Blood. Alright, here we go. Skeleton's Blood, Chapter 11. How are you holding up? Donovan asked. They were in the Rolls Royce again, carrying Hazel back across the river to Providence and her hotel. I'm sure that Edith gave you an airfall out there in the tea house. It must be overwhelming with all the rest of it. Though you're giving every appearance of taking it in remarkably well. It's a lot to absorb at once, Hazel nodded, yawning. Even though she'd been dead tired by the time she'd returned to the hotel at almost dawn, sleeping through the day had been almost impossible. She'd doze off for thirty minutes, only to wake and lie staring at the ceiling for the next half hour before nodding off again. But considering I've been studying a lot of this stuff within the context of folklore and legend for decades, the only real shock, other than the fact that you're physically present, is how organized everything is. It's the only way to survive, Donovan said simply, surveying the streets as they stopped at a red light. Hazel could see that he was scanning for peelers. At least in my opinion, we can't just prowl around like animals. Being what we are and able to enjoy it involves a certain level of sophistication, the setting and following of rules, careful planning for our concealment. A policy of non-interference with the lives of mortals under normal circumstances. All of these things are essential for our existence. Although her body was weary, Hazel's mind was still curious. I do have a question for you, though. Something Edith alluded to, but then said it was your story to tell. Donovan avoided her gaze, continuing to stare out the window. A light snow was beginning to drift down. You want to know where I'm from, why I am as I am. Feeling that his avoidance was the first part of the story, Hazel studied him carefully. His posture, normally loose, had become more rigid. Yes, I would, she answered. It might change your opinion of me, Donovan said, still watching the snow. I am not the same person whom I was many years ago. I have reformed myself, you might say, several times. How do you know it might not alter my opinion for the better? Hazel asked, if the changes have been positive. Donovan nibbled the corner of his thin lip with a long canine. Like his taking of snuff, Hazel had come to recognize it was a nervous gesture. Or you don't have to tell me, if it would make you too uncomfortable, she added hazel, hastily. No, no, I have presented you with many difficult things to accept as the truth over the past day or so, and you've risen to the occasion stoically and without judgment. It's just that there are some things in my past that I am ashamed to talk about. I assume that's why Edith skirted the issue earlier. She's always known discretion. It's one of her many fine qualities. Donovan, if this is about her alluding to your being gay. But he cut Hazel off, seeming relieved that he might possibly steer the conversation in a more comfortable direction. Oh, Lord, no. We could chat about that all day long. Did she tell you I used to have a crush on Kobe when he was still my valet? No shame there, certainly. He's still studying after all this time, but that's just wishful thinking. No, no. Donovan waved dismissively, then grew serious. I was referring to the other indiscretions. For the first time in their acquaintance, Hazel felt a tinge of apprehension. No, she didn't. What kinds of indiscretions? At last, Donovan turned to meet her curious gaze. Be assured that you have no cause for concern. It was all a very, very long time ago. However, these matters are best discussed in private. Would you be comfortable inviting me up to your room so that we could speak plainly? 
His eyes flickered from the driver and back to Hazel. An old superstition flitted across Hazel's consciousness. Never let a vampire in. She studied Donovan, and as she did so, Hazel could feel his thoughts pushing gently into her consciousness. His emerald eyes glowed with it, pulsating more intensely with each beat of her heart. Please, they urged. Please, I mean you no harm. Please let me in. Okay, said Hazel at last. Just don't do that thing where you push thoughts into my mind rather than saying them. It's eerie. And when we're through, you'll have to go. I'm quite tired. I never remain where I'm not wanted, Hazel heard, realizing as Donovan returned his gaze to the gathering snowfall that the vampire's voice was inside her head. He hadn't spoken at all. A half hour's drive later, the two of them were back in Hazel's hotel room at the Dean. Ah, a bottle of claret, my favorite, mind if I. Please, go right ahead, it... Came with a room, for some reason, Hazel replied, removing her heavy fur-collared coat and tossing it onto the bed. Don winked at her, gesturing to himself with the bottle, to indicate his identity as the sender. I should have known. How very thoughtful of you to invite yourself up to enjoy it with me, Hazel smirked as she crossed the room and pulled down the shades. Donovan began pouring out the wine. As they clinked glasses, to truth. Hazel added, I suppose there's another stereotype dashed. You do eat and drink. Donovan took a sip of the claret and smacked his lips approvingly. Of course we do, although processing things afterward can be a bit of an issue. Not to be too graphic, but being undead, we lack the intestinal motion to push things along automatically. We have to concentrate on it, and the indigestion is terrible. Wine, however, and other liquids, he said, draining the glass so quickly that Hazel could see the muscles in his throat working, goes down smoothly as silk. More? Hazel brushed him away. No, I think this will be my nightcap for the evening. I don't want to fall asleep on you. Oh, I assure you that won't happen, Donovan replied, gulping down the second glass in a single long swallow. Hazel got the impression that he was attempting to get himself drunk as fast as possible so that the words would come out more easily. Donovan pressed the rim of the glass to his cold blue lips, lost in thought. Where should I begin? Did Edith tell you about my family? Hazel shook her head no as she settled into the mid-century modernist sofa near the foot of the bed. Donovan gave up on his glass altogether and set it down on the writing desk. He tucked himself into the white leather chair opposite, holding what remained of the bottle of claret by its neck. Taking another long swig to finish it off before setting it down on the floor, Donovan began. I was born in London, the last-born son of several generations of sons who'd all been in the business of trading textiles through the India routes. The only problem was that my mother, she was an Irish maid of the family, was not the lady of the house. It caused quite a scandal, I was told growing up, though by the time it reached into the realms of my consciousness, the real lady of the house had died. My father, who was by then tired of hearing about it, decided to pack up his fresh Irish bride and take his business elsewhere, to Boston where the demand was high, but options were few for someone to orchestrate the importation of silks. From mother, I inherited my hair, my height, or lack thereof, and my wit, or so I've been told. She passed on, too, when I was ten, the year that I began studying piano with Eliza. Was that the beginning of the attachment, then? Hazel asked. That Eliza was substitute for my mother? Donovan returned. Perhaps. They were very different, though. Mother was tiny and sharp-spoken to most, but with me, she was gentle. I suppose it was because I was her only son. Father was almost sixty when I was born, so there were none after. 
Eliza was soft-spoken and docile as a lamb, both enjoyable for opposite reasons. Mother was like a sprite, bright and quick, but Eliza was beautiful, graceful, like something out of a painting. If you're familiar with the paintings of John William Waterhouse, he came much later, but hers was a beauty of that sort, a sort of longing, ethereal beauty, which is why I think of that Waterhouse painting, Lady of Shalott, when I remember her. The kind of sadness that comes with knowing your place in the world and being profoundly unhappy with it. Did Ned ever make her happy? As much as anyone could, Donovan sighed, peering down into the empty bottle as if he could wish more wine into it. He made her laugh, and I think that was enough. My father's money was old money, and with it came the ease and comfort of feeling that it had always been there. So maintaining its presence would be no real struggle. There had been once a title in it somewhere, too, but that went to an elder brother. It's not the same when the money is new as Eliza's father's was. There's always that dreadful striving feeling, as if one's just climbed out of a pit and is scrambling to stay on the right side of it. I suppose they were in that first generation. Mr. Marble considered his prettiest daughter to be a prize that might be auctioned off to the highest bidder, a commodity to broker, rather than a child to nurture. It made her nervous, and later defiant. But in the beginning, Eliza was a very tender thing, and that was how I came to know her. Is it uh, too late to ring for more wine? The abrupt, unrelated question caught Hazel off guard. Uh, yes, I, I believe so. She rose from the sofa and padded over to the small steel front refrigerator. Are you opposed to whiskey? Oof, Donovan breathed. Suppose not, if that's what we have. Toss it here. Hazel obediently tossed the vampire the bottle. He caught it effortlessly, wrapping his bloodless, bony fingers around its circumference. Twisting open the cap, he tapped the bottle with a sharp, pointed nail that reminded Hazel of the claw of a large cat. Toast last bit of cheer before we take a turn, Donvan asked. There isn't much of it to be found in the remainder of what I have to relate. Hazel agreed, and the vampire passed the bottle to her. She drank, and as she did so, Hazel could feel him watching her. Handing it back to him, the vampire drained half its contents thirstily, recapped the bottle, and tucked it into the chair beside him. Donovan breathed deeply, seeming to have finally hit the level of relaxation that he desired to fully proceed with his tale. <sighs> I won't bore you with rehashing Eliza's courtship with Ned, as I'm sure Edith has already covered that. She is more romantic than she lets on. Suffice it to say, it was a clandestine disaster from the beginning. The two of them were smitten with each other right away, which provided a useful ruse for me. I could pretend to pine for my piano teacher, penning sappy poems, poring over my pious Christian tomes in preparation for the ministry, with no one ever the wiser that I wasn't the most, well, masculine of gents. Did your father ever know that you were gay? Donovan growled around a bit, the whiskey taking hold of him solidly. Eh, maybe... If he did, he didn't let on. He might have suspected, because I wasn't ever very athletic. But I was tubercular, so that helped give excuse of my more delicate sensibilities, I suppose. And I was naturally shy and bookish to begin with, too. He bought Kobe for me partly to train as a valet and partly as a playmate. I think he was more concerned that I was unpopular than anything among the other boys. A man's ability to be well-liked by his peers was, for my father, the ultimate sign of success. Filing away the vampire's portrayal of his father as something out of a mid-century American drama, Hazel refocused the conversation. So, Kobe, 
He was a slave, to begin with. Of your family? Yes, Donovan stated, matter-of-factly. Father and I bought him in the market in Newport. Made a special trip down for it, because Father wanted someone exceptional to work in the house. Someone who was attractive enough to be a valet, for a young gentleman, for sure. Those days, a good house slave was selected, much as one would a fine piece of furniture, and his personality polished to suit the situation. Father had heard about such a boy in the shipment, who was very unusual, could speak three civilized languages, English, Dutch, and German, plus his own native tongue. And he was tall and handsome, a fine addition to any household, or so the advertisement claimed. The vampire shook his head. God, we were such pieces of shit. Even me. Never thought of where these poor people came from or what wretched levels of hell they'd gone through to get here. How we'd stolen their lives. No, we just traded them back and forth like pieces of furniture. Used them for as long as they suited us and then when they didn't anymore... He made a gesture as if slitting his throat. We were all monsters then, far worse than I am now. Regardless, father bought him, and for the next eight years, Kobe trained and worked as a valet for my older brothers and me. As you saw tonight, he grew into a striking fellow, taller than any of us and probably more intelligent though he got very little opportunity to use it. My brothers bade him little mind, but me, having few other real friends, I paid attention. By the time I was eighteen and ready to leave for college, father was almost eighty and his mind was going. When I asked him if I could allow Kobe to purchase his freedom, I'd already been allowing him to hire out during the days in which I was being tutored for several years. Kobe had earned the money. I don't think father really heard me. So it came easy for Kobe. Freedom, I mean, much easier than for other slaves, which was why I think he agreed to go into business with me later on. Less bad blood. You and Kobe were business partners, Hazel asked in disbelief. Oh, yes. Donovan was slurring his words slightly now, making his normal voice all the more serpentine. After I came back from that ghastly missionary trip to Maine, I'd lost whatever zeal I'd ever had for preaching. Kobe had been working for several years at that point as a silversmith, making tableware and such. He was far more skilled than the chap he worked for, though, and I told him so. He was looking for a line of work that I could maybe be a silent investor in. I liked it. I didn't have to have too much of an active presence. I didn't feel suitable to wear the cloth anymore, and not being comfortable otherwise to be seen in public most of the time, I went for it. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I must circle back around. Donovan drew a drunken ellipse intended to be a circle in the air and murmured an excuse before continuing. I let Kobe buy himself free the summer before I left for Harvard, the same summer Ned and Eliza married. Being away at school and allegedly absorbed in my studies kept me out of father's sight and, as they say, out of sight, out of mind. He pulled the whiskey bottle out from its hiding place took another long draught, and made a sort of crazy circle near his temple. No more of this, or I'll never tell it all the way through. He tossed the almost empty bottle at Hazel, who caught it neatly, having barely touched her wine. Her exhaustion was temporarily forgotten in the wonder of observing a vampire engage in a drunken confessional. I'd explored my options little, if you know what I mean, while in seminary. Had a better idea of who I was by the time I got home. Father didn't have long to worry about it. He died that summer and left me my expected inheritance, so maybe he never did truly know. 
Eliza passed on then, too, after their daughter was born. We'd remained close as siblings, so it was hard. But for Ned, it was even worse. She was his entire world. And when the light of that world went out, he took to the bottle hard, which gave the marbles the excuse they'd been looking for to swoop in and snatch little Bess away. Ned had always been kind of allowed, but I felt badly for him because I could tell how much he loved Eliza and their little girl. So I agreed to be the emissary of his letters back and forth when he went out to sea, more out of respect for Eliza than anything. I never dreamed Ned would become what he did. The wind had begun to blow stiffly outside, whistling around the corners of the hotel. Hazel watched the skeleton branches of the empty winter trees whip back and forth as the vampire continued. I didn't see Ned again for three years, wanting to stay out of town and having both money and an excuse to do it. I started a series of mission trips through what was just then Indian country, riding down through the Carolinas. The warm, fresh air was good for my lungs and I still had resurgences of the coughing fits that I'd had as a boy with tuberculosis from time to time back then. Plus, there was always a good-looking sailor or two hanging around the ports at Charleston and Savannah of my persuasion, and it was far enough away that the word didn't get back. Yet every time I went home to the property I'd bought in Newport, because they were less nosy than in Boston. Regarding a man's personal affairs, there was a letter from Ned to Bess. So I dutifully make the truck up to Boston, spending an evening with the child, and write back to Ned all the things that a father needed to hear. That Bess was well and happy. She missed him. The first two were true, and the last was a lie that deserved to be told. Bess was too young when Ned left to have really remembered him. The final letter I posted, which much of must have reached him, Bess was almost four. She'd seen a couple of sparrows out her window and drew a picture of them for Ned. Good drawing for little child. How did you know it reached him? Wasn't that around the time Ned turned pirate? Aye, Donovan said. I know, because the next time I saw him in a bar in Charleston, he had two sparrows tattooed on his chest, same as the ones Bess had drawn. Ned opened his shirt front and showed them to me right over his heart. He was drunk and started crying when he did. When I leaned over to embrace him and tell him it was going to be all right, he'd get Bess back someday, Ned became ashamed of himself. His men were there, and he didn't want to be seen with, in his words, talking to no fairy dandy hugging up on him. So he socked me hard in the gut and stormed off. His speech slowed down even more now, and having lost most of its polish, Donovan finished the first part of his story. Then, the last time, Ned wasn't himself at all. It was very late the night after they hanged his men at Newport. I was walking home from the bar again. He paused to excuse himself. I know you must think I was a terrible minister being drunk all the time as I was, but I was still better than many, most of the time. I tried to make people feel better about themselves, give them hope, not judgment like all the rest. He waved himself off the topic and back onto the main track of his tale. Anyway, Kobe was with me that night. We'd been swapping lies about what kind of big dogs we'd be once our silver business schemes took off and weren't paying attention. I had already made the mistake of making a sloppy pass at him earlier that night and was feeling pretty foolish, but trying not to show it. Kobe had played it off like I was just too drunk to know what I was doing. Both of us were trying to keep the tone of the conversation up so we could forget it had happened. It was rarely late, like it is now, the moon already starting to set. Then, before I even knew he was there, 
He was on me. Must have jumped down from on top of a building. Donovan swayed at the recollection. Who was on you? Ned! he exclaimed, then realizing how loudly he'd yelled the name, shushed himself. He clomped down on my neck. Those two fangs were like iron spikes. I could feel the blood squirting out of my jugular like piss. Couldn't breathe either. He must have ripped straight through my windpipe, too. I could hear air coming out of the wrong way like a whistle, but I couldn't see anything but his chest. That's how I knew it was in. During the last breaths I drew as a mortal, I watched those sparrows heaving up and down while Ned Lowe sucked the life right out of me. Jesus, Hazel exclaimed. Why did he pick you as a target? Donovan tilted his head all the way back and pulled his left hand to the side of his neck as if touching it would give him the answer. You have no idea how many times I've wondered that and come up with nothing conclusive. He could have been following me all night with a jealous chip on his shoulder because his wife's friend saw more of his child than he did. Or he could have been just striking out blind at the world. We get that way, you know, after a big sup like the one he'd had earlier that night on the beach, raising his men and finishing them off. He must have felt like a shark in bloody water, invincible and ready to bite anything he saw. Donovan allowed his head to flop down, chin to chest. Or perhaps I'm just lucky, I guess. Lucky me. Feeling the vampire begin to grow maudlin, Hazel followed up to keep him on topic. Did you change right away? No, Donovan lolled his head back and forth. It took a few days. Kobe fought Ned off with a silver knife he had on his belt. I didn't learn till later that the only two things that can irrevocably harm or destroy vampires are silver and fire. It wasn't a long blade, but the moment Kobe slashed him once with it, Ned let out this otherworldly shriek and fled. Kobe took off his scarf, a thick, woven silk one I'd given him, and bound up my throat to try to stop the blood. He ran through the streets, carrying me to the surgeon and calling out for help, but people were the same then as they are now. No one would answer the cries of a black man in the night. I have little recollection of what happened to me after that. I must have blacked out from the loss of blood and, in truth, died. But you rose again. How long did it take? Hazel pressed on. The wind had continued to pick up and was now blowing waves of whirling snow against the window panes. Oh, yes. Must have scared the bloody hell out of that undertaker to come in and find the coffin empty. I had no family close by in Newport, so Kobe summoned my brothers from Boston. When I woke up, it was the next evening. I was laid out in a coffin right in my own parlour in the little house by the sea I'd bought for myself. They didn't mess around in those days, especially in the summertime. Corpses started stinking and drawing flies too quickly, so I suppose my funeral was going to be held as soon as my brothers arrived, possibly that very afternoon. The first thing I remember was that my throat was extremely dry, and every muscle ached as if I'd run ten miles in the hot sun on the beach without water. Groggy eyes sat up and started coughing up large clots of dried blood in my lap. I thought I'd woken up with the tuberculosis again because I had a terrible headache and my chest felt an enormous pressure, like there was an anvil sitting on it. My vision, too, was strange, blurred and hazy round the edges. Nevertheless, I struggled out of the coffin. I still remember standing there in my parlour in this sort of stupor, wondering if I'd just drunk too much and it was all some kind of hungover fever dream. Somehow I staggered out into the night, though, and it was like magic. 
He snapped his fingers. My vision cleared instantly, and the smells! God, I had no idea what I was smelling was blood, of course. Human blood and animal blood, alive and pulsating through the warmth of their veins. My body ached with the warmth of it, throbbed as a young man might with unquenched desires of the flesh. The vampire paused, lost in the memory of the wild sensations of his awakening. So uh, where did you go? What did you do? Hazel asked, urging him onward. Everywhere, Donovan exclaimed again. Like a young soldier gets hard for both the war he has to fight and the women he'll take by conquest afterward, my thirst was insatiable. Although I'd never desired women very much before, I longed for them then. Not sexually, but physically, ravenously, as one might crave a piece of red meat. I could taste their tender sweetness in their blood even before it touched my lips. There were three or maybe four that first night, all ladies of the evening, I think. But I don't really remember. I was in such a fog. The only thing I do recall for sure was that toward the end of it, I could sense the sun returning, swelling over the horizon like the carnal heat of a man about to burst. Instinctively, I knew that I must find a place where there was total darkness. Staggering blindly through back alleys, I literally fell into one, a cellar, with the entry behind a restaurant. Someone had carelessly left the door open. The next day they were closed and I remained undiscovered, sleeping among casks of wine and beer. When I rose again in the evening, I thought the blood on my shirt front must have been from a fall, but having no glass in which to look, I could only feel about my person for abrasions, yet I found none. My headache had subsided and my vision returned, though I supposed it must have been just poisoned by bad alcohol. There was a lot of it going round in those days, home brews. Nevertheless, I could see and hear again, with an intensity equal to that of a keen dog. Although I knew it was Sunday, there were even fewer people than usual out in the streets. Going into a tavern, for I was still insatiably thirsty, I understood why. I heard a group of men talking about women who'd been murdered the previous night, their throats slashed and blood drained out. I remember staring at my reflection in the mirror behind the bar as I listened to them, and that's when it dawned on me. The sunken pallor of my skin and the unnatural sheen of my eyes, reflecting back like a wildcat in the candlelight. The nights before hadn't been some wretched dream brought on by a batch of bad liquor. Ned's attack had turned me into something else, although what precisely I was unsure. But you knew, then, that you'd killed them, the women they were talking about. Donovan pushed his hands back through his hair, causing a few strands to work loose from his ponytail. He reached up and removed the length of ribbon that bound the rest together, allowing the thick black length of it to cascade down over his shoulders. The snow had stopped falling, but the wind persisted. Yes, he said slowly. Yes, I... I knew. I didn't want to admit it to myself, but I knew it was true. Hazel followed his eyes as they searched across the blanket of whiteness that covered everything outside, swirling in the lamplight. I didn't know why, though. Why such desperate thirst had driven me to it. I'd never been a violent man never prone to outbursts of temper and had only ever raised my fist to anyone in self-defense. I'd always been an intellectual, an aesthete, above such things, or so I thought. And that's what scared me the most. I thought I was losing my mind. Donovan nibbled at his lower lip with a long eye tooth. So I did the only logical thing that a young man possessed of sadistic tendencies could reasonably do for an outlet. Which is what young men have always done. I joined the militia. You hardly seem the military type, 
Hazel said, taking a sip of her almost full wine glass at last. She'd been so engrossed in listening that she'd forgotten it was even in her hand. I wasn't, I'm still not, but I joined, nevertheless, as a chaplain, Donovan continued. Back then, chaplains didn't make dainty with their morality. They took up arms and killed as many men as other soldiers. We were at war then, up in Maine, with the French and the Indians, so the British crown was always looking for fresh blood to feed to the wilderness. It was all for money, of course, just as wars have always been. This particular one was about fur trading routes. There was a minister, a real one, not as I am, but a Jesuit priest by the name of Father Sebastian Rail, who had been making trouble for the crown. He was a good man, as many Jesuits were then. Sincere in his concern for the Albanaki people, to whom he ministered, a real man of feeling, Sebastian Rail was like one of the wilderness saints of old, though he'd never become one. His politics weren't popular enough for that. Regardless, there was this village, see, where his mission was, Norwich Walk. The Indians had made it plain by then that we English had pushed them far enough out of their hunting lands and that they were ready to take up the hatchet against us whenever Father Rail gave them the order. And they did, too, right to the last. You're speaking of Father Rail's war, Hazel understood. In the 1790s, wasn't it? I heard about it in colonial American history class as an undergrad. Every one of the Abenaki were killed. It was a massacre by the English. I, continued Donovan, his voice growing soft under the weight of memory sinking heavily upon him. August 23rd, 1794. Father Rail, too, was killed by my own hand. The night before our raid, it was choking hot. Worse for me because I hadn't been able to sneak off and feed for several nights, so the blinding headaches were back again. At that point, I had determined that blood eased them somewhat and had taken up killing squirrels and rabbits during my turns on the night watch, which I always volunteered for so that I could drink of them unnoticed and sleep during the day. By that point I'd convinced myself that I had some rare kind of anemia, and if I could just replenish whatever was missing in my own blood with that of animals, it would cure me. Why is it that intelligent men are always the ones who fool themselves most easily. The vampire glanced at Hazel for an answer to his rhetorical question, but seeing that she had none to offer, continued on. We'd rowed up the Kennebec River in whaleboats from Fort Richmond, but when we came to the falls, we had to leave them behind and continue on foot. After having been encamped for several nights, the captains trying to determine the best method of attack, a man came up to us from out of nowhere in the forest. He was bent and decrepit-looking. He carried a gold-headed cane, though, and he wore the dark, plain clothes of a Puritan. His long, gaunt face was heavily lined and sinister, like a gargoyle. He claimed he was a doctor of medicine, and that he'd been travelling the wilderness in search of rare herbs and native cures that might be used against local diseases. At first, Captain Moulton was suspicious that he might be a French spy, but the man professed to be a loyal Englishman. As they spoke, I watched the captain's apprehension slip away as he seemed to become entranced by the sound of the old man's voice. Gradually, the old doctor pulled it out of the captain that he had been attempting to devise a plan of attack against the Abenaki, as if he had been waiting all along for the conversational opportunity to present itself. The old doctor immediately began to lay out a plan by which we might successfully attack the Norwichwook settlement. He said the Abenaki scouts had observed us lying in wait for them, and that the Abenaki had planned to try to escape downriver the next night by canoe. The Abenaki were known to be fierce fighters. However, 
if we were waiting to ambush them at just the right point, under cover of darkness, when they were with their wives and children, we might be able to overwhelm them. I still remember the captain's face as the smile of relief spread across it. The path toward resolution of this dilemma, which could have meant the loss of his command, had just been revealed to him. Also, the glitter of silver danced in his eyes. This would mean returning possibly hundreds of scalps to the governor, and the ransom for Indian scalps was high. A hundred pounds sterling for any native scalp a man could produce. For an army man, this wasn't just a career-making victory. It was a fortune. Whoa, wait, interrupted Hazel, almost spilling her wine as she leaned forward. You're telling me the English took the Abenakis scalps? I must have missed that part in history class. I'd always heard it was the other way around. Donovan scowled. Where the hell do you think the Indians learned scalping from? The English and the French, they didn't pick it up until much later, and for them the reasons were far different. They took European scalps for revenge and for bragging rights, to show other tribes they weren't so damned afraid of us. We were out after the only thing that's ever really roused Americans to action. Money. I'd wager nary a soul would have joined the colonial militia in those days if they hadn't thought it would earn them a quick buck, especially off an Indian. All of our successful forefathers were mercenaries at heart, and at some point, none of us had too many problems with the crown. In fact, we'd probably all still be Englishmen today if the taxes gotten, hadn't gotten too high. Regardless, though, he waved dismissively at Hazel in her naivety. Prine was set to wet his beak in native blood, too, twice over. One by conning the Abenaki into revealing their remedies so that he could rework and sell them as patent medicines to make his fortune, and then the second time by leading us to the village so that we could wipe them out. Before he left that evening, Prine had also weaseled a compromise out of our captains to give him a cut of the profits from every scalp taken. If he could lead us to a secret ambush point at the water's edge from which we could attack without danger blood money without ever having to risk so much as a paper cut. This time, Hazel did drop her wine glass, but it was empty. Did you say Prine? Was he the... the only one there ever has been, so far as I know, Dodge replied, although Prine's always known more about me than I did him. He must have been watching for some time to know as much as he did then. Which was? Hazel asked, leaning forward even further in anticipation of Donovan's next words. He shot Hazel a sassy look. Rarely do I have to spell it out for you, letter by letter. That you were a vampire, Hazel finished, and... Yes, it's the and portion which would have caused me the most trouble. Donovan said, completing the thought. In those days, accusation of homosexuality was a death sentence. That night, as the captains were still mulling over staging strategies for the Obanoki attack, as Prine had suggested, I was on night watch. Slipping up on me unseen, the first words Prine ever spoke to me were, I know what you are, and I could kill you where you stand. But if you will do this thing for me, I will let you live. Then Prime proceeded to inform me that he was willing to let my captains know about my sexuality and my bloody nocturnal exploits. If I did not agree to murder for the rail. How did he know? Hazel puzzled. And what did he have against the priest? Once again, Donovan answered, shrugging. I am at a loss for explanation. That's always been Prine's greatest strength, moving as a lone vampire. It's part of his mystery. To know everything about you and to exploit every weakness. Whilst you know nothing about him. He told me that night he knew about my 
other lives, as he called them. The ones in which I lived as myself, a gay man, but also a killer. The curse which sentenced me to roaming the woods at night, searching for wild game which might quiet my thirst for blood. Donovan paused again, his eyes tracing the shadowy descent of the moon beyond the clouded horizon. And so, out of my own cowardice, my abject terror of having the duality of my nature revealed, I acquiesced. The next morning I went to the captains, saying that I had experienced a vision from God. Goddamn nonsense, in fact, so much that I remain revolted by it. That we should attack precisely as Prime had instructed. And so we did. The next morning, hundreds of Obanaki were murdered as they attempted to flee from us. Obeying Prime's orders, I made straight for Father Rail. As I fell upon him, Father Rail looked directly into my eyes. I'll never forget it. And he said, God, have mercy on you, son. After I latched on to him, I sucked him dry of blood. I shot him in the face with my pistol to make it look more normal. Although I cared nothing for the bounty that would be produced by his scalp, I took it anyway. I made a terrible mangling of it. My knife was dull, and I had been driven out of my wits by staring at the gaping hole in the priest's face where his nose had been, his blind eyes, staring at me as blue as the noonday sky on either side of it, caused something to break in my mind. In the end, I finally just ripped the scalp straight away from his skull. I hoped to God he was fully dead by then. As I lay panting with exertion from the struggle for the father, was a strong, tough man. In the bottom of his canoe I spied a strong box. Later I came to realise that Prime didn't give a shit in the wind about Father Rail, or about me. His real aim was control of that box, which he hoped I would steal after I disposed of Father Rail. What was in the box? Hazel asked. She had recovered her wine glass at this point and held it absently twisting in her hand. Papers, mostly. Translations of native language into English. The first dictionary of its kind. And a journal of Rail's life among the Indians, including his encounters with Prime. Rail knew Prime was a vampire. The books came open easily. All I had to do was bash the cover on some river rocks, but for the rails journal, well... Here Dodge paused again to smooth his hair. It revealed an entirely new world to me, the world of the vampire that I had become. Having been in close contact with Prine for many years, Rail had recorded in his journal many of the oddities concerning vampiric life, how we might thrive as undead beings, and also how we might perish. The priest must have performed a great deal of research into the undead on his own, because the journal laid out the history of our kind, and how we might choose to bring others into it as well. Later on, when I took the box to Harvard for archiving and study, I left all of the papers inside of it, save for that journal. It became my compass, my morning star, for navigating the world as a vampire. I still have it, locked away in a vault. Only Howard and I know of its whereabouts. And Prime? Hazel inquired, wondering about the dastardly doctor. Did he come after you, once he knew you were in possession of the box and the journal? Donovan shook his head. Strangely, no which is another layer to the great mystery that is Dr. Roger Prime. After reading the journal, of course I knew that destroying it was the real cause for his interest in seeing Father Rail dead. I expected him to come after me, which was why I put the box in safekeeping at Harvard. It was a destruction from the fact that I had already extracted the journal and maintained it in my possession. 
Perhaps Brian learned that I had left the strong box at Harvard. The event was well publicized at the time, for the governor sought to capitalize politically on the defeat of the Abenaki, and so the capture of for the rail strongbox was considered physical evidence of this conquest, along with the scalps. Maybe Prine went there, rifled through its contents, but finding no journal arrogantly assumed that it had been already destroyed somehow in the massacre. Or perhaps it was all just an idle threat, a power play of intimidation from an older vampire against a younger one who might usurp him. No one ever knows what Prine's true motivations are, other than to sow the seeds of chaos wherever he walks. For whatever reason, though, Brian has never troubled me about that journal. Dodger's face grew more drawn and sombre. But after I murdered for the rail, and in so doing learned the true monstrosity of what I was, I vowed to learn how to control it. I kept careful records of my feedings in a new journal or my own, learning that drinking the blood of a full-grown deer would steady me for a month before the demonic hunger struck again, or that a rabbit would tide me over only for a few days. If I sought to move among the world of the living, and I did desperately, if for no other reason than the simple reassurance that some portion of me was still human, I knew control was the key. So I developed a code of conduct for vampires that I chose to bring into my sea. I sought the counsel of learned men and women of letters, whose rational thinking I believed would quench my thirst for knowledge. To those whom I thought were interested and willing, I offered the position of being my scribe during life and a free spirit afterwards, a reward for acting as companions in my solitude. Dodge smiled sadly at Hazel. Since then, my seethe and my scribes have been my greatest solace. Though all of them seek to live their own afterlives separately from me eventually, I am at peace with their decisions, for otherwise I am a comfortless man. He turned to face Hazel directly. You, too, will learn to be revolted, by me over time, I'm sure of it, probably sooner than others, given what you will inevitably witness over the next few days, as we are forced to confront Low and the rest. What makes you so certain? Hazel asked. After all, I've accepted everything you've disclosed to me so far, without protest, even the killing of Father Rail. Hazel reached for the vampire's hand, but he recoiled from her attempt to comfort him, closing his white fists in his lap. How can you be so certain that all of this isn't unfolding as it should, as Shakespeare would have called it, a sort of rough-hewn divinity that shapes our ends? You mentioned that Father Rail was like a saint in the wilderness. Don't most saints have to be martyred for others to appreciate their sacrifice? For if you have never been pressed to kill him, how long would you have stumbled? killing without remorse, never truly knowing what you were or how to temper your thirst. Hazel met the intense emerald light of the vampire's gaze with her own plain green eyes. What I'm trying to say is that if you'd never committed that murder, how different would you be from Prime or Low or any other vampire? Would any of them be stepping forward as you are now? Donovan considered this. Perhaps Oliver, a few of the others. But since they would be lying in dusty graves if it weren't for me, I appreciate your argument. As Hamlet said, God has seen fit to punish me with this, and this with me, that I must be thy scourge and minister. Although the longer I proceed, the more I wonder whether lines are drawn between the two, or whether there is any distinction at all. The vampire sat studying Hazel for a few moments as she watched. His eyes began to rim with red. Then stepping away from her, he rose to face the window. Pulling a white linen handkerchief from his pocket, he brushed it across his eyes. 
When he turned back, Hazel could see that the cloth balled up in his fist had droplets of blood on it. At the same time, a mist had begun to materialize near the door to Hazel's room. Sir, it's less than an hour until daybreak, a voice said, the shadowy film of the spirit's silhouette coming steadily into focus. Hazel recognized Lovecraft's ghost. We really must return to the library. Yes, Howard, Dodge responded. As ever, you are the common sense which speaks to my overly indulgent sensibilities. Dodge reached over and cupped his cold hand atop Hazel's at last. You are too kind. That is one of the many reasons why I chose you. I felt that you, more than others, might be receptive, for I have much to confess many times before I might have any hope of absolution, he said, out of fear that the truth of my life's circumstances would be revealed, I killed a holy man, a man who truly lived the life of a saint, while acting self-servingly under orders as a false holy man myself. He shook his head. What I have done is the height of blasphemy. I have no choice but to continue to live as a vampire. For if I were to perish, what is waiting for me on the other side? The fires of hell, most surely, should they exist. The vampire drew on his travelling cloak, pulling the hood of its soft, dark grey wool securely around his face, shielding it from the light. Then he drew closer to Hazel and whispered in her ear, his icy lips brushing her cheek. But for now, the simple fact that you do not flee from me is enough. If you have any apprehension regarding our relationship, please speak freely, and I will release you from your promise. I understand completely if you find the very sight of me repulsive for my hypocrisy. Bewildered, Hazel stared at him. From what you've told me, you were a normal, upper-class man, forced into a profession he didn't care for and to repress his true nature out of a desire to please his family. Then you were betrayed and randomly attacked by another man whom you'd only ever extended friendship to. Last, you were blackmailed into assassinating another minister, one to whom you give full credit as being a better and truer man to his mission and in his faith than you were yourself. So I'm confused as to which one of these is deserving of my negative judgment. To me, it seems like you are merely a fellow who would go to any lengths not to disappoint your family and friends. Far from revulsion, I feel almost enlightened somehow through being in proximity with you. The corners of Dodge's mouth raised into a half-smile. Many have had fault to find with my morality and my message, and you've yet to hear the portion in which I become a pyromaniac, feigning madness, the maniac dodge, they called me. That's another story for a later time, Hazel said, sliding the window open a mere sliver. Lovecraft's spirit slipped over the sill and hovered expectantly. I think I will survive the shock of such revelations, although you might not if you continue to linger. Moments later, as she watched the ghostly glow of the scribe disappearing into the gray light of dawn with his vampire following behind, Hazel wondered whether this conversation was a foreshadowing of what her own afterlife would be like, perpetually turning over the regrets of the past until she wore them down as a river wore smooth a stone. This is the end of chapter 11. Be sure to tune in next week for the next chapter of Skeleton's Blood, here on the Haunted Muse podcast. Until then, this is Vivian Catfield reminding you to remain ever watchful, because you never can tell. Someone or something, somewhere out there, just might be watching you. Yeah.